When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to Utabia. Stephen Chicken here alongside David Hartrick. How are you doing, Dave? Uh, not too bad. Back in lockdown in Lindley, effectively. But yeah, not too bad. Not that it's ruined your, your plans for to go to the snooker or to, to have a bit of family time or anything like that. Uh, it's not a sore subject and I'm totally alright with it. <laughs> and if it's good enough for Huddersfield Town to poach a key individual from a hated rival, then it's good enough for us as we're also joined by Matt Shaw, the host of Andy Takes That Chance. How are you doing, Matt? Hated rivals are a bit strong. (laughs) Mate, I love you. I don't understand where this this has come from. It's like a love-hate relationship. What's it like to be in enemy territory once again? Well, I'm sat in my front room, mate, so it's uh, same old, same old. (laughs) (laughs) Right, magic. Uh, So we've got the season review, obviously, because the season's over, so that's what you do at the end of the season, isn't it? You, You look back and you review. And I don't think any of us expected to be sitting here... You know, this time last year, well, for a start, talking about a season that's only just finished, but also to be talking about a relegation battle. I'll go to you first, Matt. What do you make of the season as a whole, uh, just to to set a flavour of of everything? It's strange because you have to cast your mind back twelve months rather than the <laughs> usual nine. So, um, yeah, it's a, a very long, drawn out, little bit tedious season in me- in many parts. Yeah. It's um, not been the most exciting, uh, but. At, I suppose at the end uh, we can be quite happy that we're staying in the championship for another season. So um, when we did our pre-season predictions, I thought we would start badly and pick up steam and look quite good towards the end of the season. And I think we did start badly and then picked up, but then dropped off again and, and picked up slightly. So it's a very stuttery season. It's one that I'm, I'm glad that's uh, glad that's over. Yeah, it was sort of a season of gradual lowering of expectations, wasn't it? In fact, not even that gradual, um, was it, Dave? Um, no, I I think when we did our like pre-season predictions, we all thought Town would have a fairly unspectacular season. But the the reality was that like six games in, it had already been a massive soap opera. Really, we'd already had a couple of really weird games. There was it was shaping up really early on to be an odd season. We didn't know quite how odd it would be. Nobody did. Um, but yeah, it, it feels it doesn't really feel like a missed opportunity because I think in reality town were never really there in the first place to, to deliver what we thought they could because of lots of different reasons. Things we didn't know at the start of the season as well, I think it would be fair to say. So I think Matt absolutely hit the nail on the head there. I think in the end it was just about staying in the championship and town achieved that. So it's not exactly a well done, but it is a job done, isn't it? Very much so, yeah. I mean, it, we should probably start from the beginning because it's easy to forget, but this is a season that started with Jan Siva in charge. It feels like forever ago now. And it very quickly became apparent that 
that the players weren't fit at the start of the season. Mm. Uh, I think I think we can say now that the season's been and gone, and you know certain people at the club have left and, and things like that. We we did sort of get wind that that the players might not be in the best shape. I think after the first game of the season, the, there's a, a player that that left town, and we sort of got wind through through sort of their new club that they weren't happy with with the player the player's fitness level, and mm. it that was automatically a a big red flag. Um, for for town, and I think when you when you've it was a big enough job for Jan Siever to begin with, you know, having having come in in January and had that that awful end to the Premier League season where he was on a hide into nothing. But I think people were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt going into the summer, and, and the, our fan survey that we did this time last year suggested people were you know willing to give him a chance. But the wheels came off so quickly, didn't they, Matt? Yeah, look, I, I felt a bit sorry for Jan Siever. He was. He came in at a difficult time, and and mm. what I thought when he came in in the Premier League was that he should have it should have been a more experienced man that came in, someone to uh, maybe pick up pick the players up off the floor. And, and what we tend what we seemed to get was a coach rather than a manager at the time, and and he he was on a bit of a hide into nothing really, and uh, everything seemed to go wrong. But pre season came, and I think what we've learnt this season as much as any is that you don't put too much stock in pre-season results because you know we went unbeaten throughout pre-season and then even just before lockdown we had the friendlies and we seemed to be free scoring and and uh, and knocking teams over there but um yeah i think he, he he deserved the chance and i think the main thing to take away really is that if we'd have made the change in the summer and we brought a manager in who who, not, who didn't do that well, then people will be sat there going, well, why didn't Jan Ziva get a chance? Because we finished the season okay with the two draws against Man United and Southampton. Okay, maybe they were on the on the holiday, so to speak. But uh, we then took that into pre-season. The pre-season results looked good. The couple of players looked a little bit rejuvenated. Adama Diakabi being one of them. Uh, and then they walked out and as soon as the season started, you could see the pressure come back and the shoulders, you know, on the shoulders of the, the players and um, all of a sudden the pressure's back on and, and you could see that mentally the players really struggled to cope once the, uh, the first whistle went against Derby. We talked a lot about sliding doors moments and there were a few in that, that Derby game because Town actually did have some chances to get an equaliser that, that they didn't take. And then the other one was QPR away where Town actually played reasonably well for the majority of the game and then conceded a, a really, really soft goal to a set piece which would become a massive, massive theme, both the the in terms of late goals and set piece goals. And I think it was also became pretty apparent really quickly, didn't it, Dave, that the, the recruitment that had been done in the summer was not what it needed to be. No, I I think the thing about Jan was I, I, I think looking back we can all say he was the right man at the wrong time at the wrong club. I'm absolutely positive from hearing him talk in some press conferences, etc., that he is going to have a very successful spell somewhere doing something, whether that's as a manager or whether that's as a youth coach, etc. I've no idea, but he knew his stuff. But he, the tools he was given weren't great. The the mentally, the players were just on the floor, and I think some of that. I think some of the fitness issues were mental issues as well, to be honest with you. It's that when you... I spoke about it on the podcast on a, a, a few times that when you're sort of down and mentally you're struggling, you don't do anything on adrenaline and town were just so obvious and so slow and so they, they weren't getting a boost from anywhere. And that Kuchunga missing the very first game of the season feels like an absolutely massive moment on reflection because... I think Town, they rallied second half against Derby. 
They were 2-1 down. They rallied. They did okay. They were struggling to break down that, that what was basically a line of six in the second half. But they got that chance with Kachunga. And you think if that had gone in and they would have got the draw, you know, snatched the draw from the jaws of defeat, that would have taken them into the QPR game on a bit of a bounce. And they may have actually got something through it. But it just got progressively worse after that point. And the... The Lincoln game, there's, the thing about the Lincoln game is I don't think it was handled brilliantly by Phil after the game, etc., walking up and down the touchline, but you could see that he had, Jan had changed the team almost completely and the mental issues were still there. So that shows yeah. how, how far down the squad and how deep they ran um, when you had a couple of players making their debut who were quite clearly in the same mode so change had to happen and that that weird week of we all knew he was gone after the Fulham game except he wasn't gone because you had the game on Friday against uh, sorry after the Lincoln game but you had the game on Friday against Fulham so he was sort of given a like a four-day stay of execution just to make life a little bit easier it just it wasn't handled brilliantly but at the end of the day it had to happen didn't it yeah absolutely and that sort of paved the way for the new manager hunt and <laughs> I think that was one of the sort of the most frantic I mean there's been a few times this season where town fans have got frantic and upset and you can totally understand that I think rightly so in, in a lot of those cases but the the time it took for them to appoint the Cowley brothers you know it, it took I think close to three weeks for, for the Cowleys to come in but it turned out to be well worth the wait didn't it Matt? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, they they were the type that we needed. Uh, it was the right decision to to give Jan Ziva the opportunity to carry on the season, and then it was the right opportunity. Uh, sorry, the right decision to uh, remove him when we did. You know, there was no point flogging a dead horse, so to speak. Uh, things weren't going to get better under Jan. It was it was going to be more of the same. And the decision to remove him and then bring in the Cowleys was uh, was good. And obviously, we had to wait a couple of weeks for for that to get over the line. And I was always quite blasé and at the, at the start of the season I, I just think you know we'll Jan will go and we'll bring someone in and then it'll these players are too good to struggle so I was never never one to kind of sit there and think it, we're going to get you know we're, we're in trouble we're going to get relegated I always thought someone would come in pick the players up and have that effect you know the uh, Peter Jackson or Neil Warnock style effect where they'll pick the players up and then we'll be fine I, I always thought that yeah, I mean, we we talked on this podcast about that they needed someone to get them back to basics, almost, mm. uh, you know, a Neil Warnock type. And Dave actually hit the nail on the head and said the Cowleys were the right men for the job. Um, mm. e- even after the Lincoln game, I think it was, you said that the best men that they could go and get were the, the men that were in the dugout for Lincoln City. So, mm. um, yeah, well done on that one, Dave. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, they, they had a massive effect straight away, didn't they? Or almost straight away, I should say. Yeah, they, there's, I mean, I've heard there's been a little bit of revisionism around the Cowleys and the Cowleys initially coming. You know, I've heard a few town fans saying that they watched that Lincoln game and they weren't particularly impressed with them, what have you. And it's absolute rubbish. They, they, tactically, they were brilliant that night and they'd obviously done their research and that's what they bring. And when they came in, you have to remember this club had, what, one point after six? And that was stretched to two points after nine. That's right, yeah. And that is, uh, I mean, that's not looking down the barrel of a gun. That's nearly swallowing it whole, you know. No that, one's ever come back from that. Yeah. Um, and it, it is, this, look, we're not going to sit here and say it was an impossible job, but I think there is probably maybe 85% of the managers available to town out there wouldn't have been able to do that job 
So for Town to be able to go and get somebody in that 15% was a bit of a statement. And I I still think that... I think, I think we'll go into how the season unfolded from there, but I think they've come in and they've had to do so much firefighting over the year. That's coloured one or two opinions of, of what they can do. They, yeah. they really were the sort of best absolute best available option to town and you know kudos to phil he went out and got the best available option so you have to take your hat off there yeah and we mentioned they had an almost immediate effect that was despite them not really being able to add anyone to the squad the only player that they added was was danny simpson because obviously they came in after the the transfer window had closed danny simpson was a free agent right back was such a major major problem in those first few games just you know had was constantly out of position and that dragged Tommy Elphick out of position and that dragged Schindler out of position and so many goals came because of that gap down the right hand side but Danny Simpson it's also worth saying came in and made an immediate difference and Town suddenly looked to not an altogether different team but a team that looked like they knew how to get points they went on that seven game unbeaten run you know they, they drew against Millwall and that was only a draw because Camille Grabara dropped it in his own net from a corner then they beat Stoke they beat Hull the 3-0 at home to Hull which I know was a few fans favorite game this season they had the two all draw against Blackburn which was another individual error I think it was Tommy Elphick on that occasion they had the nil nil against Middlesbrough when Ryan Schofield was in goal because of illness they beat Barnsley 2-1 at home and then I think one of the best performances of the season was sort of the the last game of that run they beat Brentford away from home and Mm. that 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 game in particular is is one of the highlights of the season to me because you know they, they went over and did the sort of the Wagner wave to the fans at the at the end of the game at, at the away end at, at Griffin Park and that really felt like a moment where it was like this is you know not only are they going to get out of the mire but they could have a bit of a special season here wasn't it Matt? We'll probably call it a Danny Cal, uh, Danny and Nicky Cowley honeymoon period if you like but for me that was the best period of the season. It definitely is yeah in terms of results unquestionably four clean sheets as well. Everything seemed to be coming together and then all of a sudden uh, we rolled into Deepdale on a back on a bit of form and uh, things went a little bit wrong very quickly at the start of that game for us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was also positives in, you know, Janino Bakuna during that seven game run came in and made a big impact. Yeah, he was he was fantastic and he was one of the players at the end of last season, at the end of the Premier League season that we thought would carry that form through. He was probably the only one playing well towards the end of the season and Adama Diakabi showed flashes as well in the Arsenal game and we thought that he would be, you know, one of the best standout players this season so to speak and he didn't really get going and whether that was down to influences outside of out you know off of the pitch or anything and you know obviously he's had a tough time uh family wise and all of a sudden a manager's come in and it, it just seemed to get hold of him and, and understand him a bit more in that Janino Bakuna is an impact player he plays well for sort of 15 20 minutes a game and during that during that period there he's usually next to unplayable you know for a five minute period where he can he can beat players of fun he's got excellent technique he's got decent vision it's just the discipline side of things and I think the Cowley's kind of found a little niche for him in certain situations in certain circumstances where they were just unleashing from the bench and you know he, he's completely turned the whole game around the, the game against Hull was maybe drifting a little bit and then he's come off the bench and him and Diakabi and Grant were the three players that made everything happen that day uh, against Blackburn. He was he was great when he came, you know, when he came and got that goal. Mm. Uh, and yeah, he was uh, he was a real standout player along with uh, Cal and Grant. I think through that period, mm-hmm. he he was brilliant in that Blackburn game. That Blackburn draw, yeah. he was he was sensational. To be fair, it, it it was it was three games in a row he came off the bench and scored against Stoke, Hull, and Blackburn. 
so we had that that high that seven game run and then we we went to Deepdale as you say and then sort of things suddenly turned yeah we, we kind of look at the Bristol game as the the watershed moment of the season if you like that's where <laughs> yeah the honeymoon periods probably ended properly and, and all of a sudden Danny Cowley's had got the same problems Jan Ziva did in that several players just weren't performing uh some of them probably for different reasons some of it was form some of them maybe trying too hard uh some of them just didn't want to be there and and that was that was part of the problem you've got quite an ugly mix of different things going on there and and and, and like you've said Steve Danny Cowley's having to manage game to game very often and that Bristol City game just highlighted that certain players just weren't ready to be at Huddersfield Town at that point if you like um are willing to be at Huddersfield Town and others were showing, you know, a bit of a mental fragility as well. You and know. physical fragility, yeah, to be perfectly honest. That's just what I was about to say, yeah. Yeah, go on then, Dave, you take that point. Well, I, it, that game, we were all sort of fairly fooled into thinking that things would be okay. Um, but, you know, when you have problems as deep as Huddersfield Towns have been this season, you can't just bring a manager in and they magically disappear. And it felt like everything came to the fore in one great big lump again and then mm. again against Bristol which was the game where they 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 had to kick out what was it I think they lost four was it five first teamers yeah yeah. There, 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 are th- there are three that we definitely know were dropped out the side because of you know mm. the attitude and performance basically and that, that I mean we've, we've skirted around it but you know we can name them it was um, it was Isaac Kambenza Terence Kingolo and Adama Diakabi who yeah. did that that I mean that performance from Diakabi to be perfectly honest is is I think the worst performance I've mm. ever seen from a I, professional footballer who wasn't Ali Dia yeah <laughs> I think without, I mean, I don't, I don't want to skip too far on, and I don't want to sort of start talking about things too generally. But I think what I think one of the issues with the Cowleys has been, and that period sort of exemplified it, is that right up until this point in all of their, if you look back through their management, going right back to Concord Rangers, etc., one thing they've always done is imposed a really strong identity on the club and on the way they play and had a vision, and it's all been about us. It's not been about who you're playing or who you're up against. It's all been about us. What they had to do is they had to adapt themselves because for the entirety of the season, they have had to manage in quite a literal sense from game to game. They've had to constantly adjust, change. I don't think they've ever really had, you know, the the first 11 they're completely happy with, etc. And the problem is that the criticism you would level at the Cowleys, and it, I think it goes beyond the Cowleys, I think you have to point the finger at the players, is that when, when it went wrong, it was always wheels off and wheels everywhere. It was never just... A, a bad performance that where town and managed to come out of it with a draw it was always an absolute horror show and i think again it, it's i think that also reflects on the cowleys a little bit because i think they they were they made wrong choices for some of those games mm-hmm. um but it does reflect the the fact they were constantly having to tinker and change when one of their hallmarks has been they like to have a set system they like to have sort of at least a set nine um you know and and build from there so but those those pair of performances the Preston and Bristol were just I mean they were just collapses they weren't performances were they no the the Bristol City it was I'm really glad I was I actually missed that game uh I can't remember why I was I was away I think I had a prior engagement so I couldn't get to that game but um 
I obviously I watched it on the video afterwards and I, I couldn't but even knowing the score you watch that first half and it's like this is unbelievable and as I say that that dear Carby performance and and Congolo as well was was not good in that game I mean that they they shifted him position was it I think he started at left back and then he moved into center half yeah he, he was uh, there was that awful goal where he went out to close the cross down and he just did absolutely nothing if you're if all you're offering to block a cross is just to sort of hang a leg in in an area that's just not good enough and again i think that's mental not physical i think that's that's just a bit of a lack of i don't i don't i don't ever think players think i'm not going to do what my manager tells me or i'm going to do the opposite or i'm going to play badly but i think it's just mentally just not having that drive at that time not having that ambition yeah. not want to be frank just not having the desire to work hard enough is what it comes down to but yeah. then but then you have to remember from there they then bounced and they got through that period in December with a massive injury crisis with having to boot there were the three you named, but we can also sort of say that Congolo and Reese Brown disappeared as well at the same time from first team squad duties. And they got through that period in December picking results up until the Stoke game when they were just, everybody was just, just I'm not going to swear, Steve, but I am going to say on their arse. They just had, <laughs> nobody had anything left to give by the time that Stoke game came round. But, but they'd put together another pretty decent run over Christmas that you would argue, while the first run was perhaps the best spell of the season, I think that run through December where they managed to pick those points up, like I think it was the Forest game in December and a couple of others. Yeah, Charlton I, and Blackburn. That's the run that effectively saved them. That's the run that put them in the position where they could actually start looking up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even against Wigan, they they didn't play very well, and people were kicking off because they only drew against Wigan. Um, but they actually did well to get a point out of that game. But as you say, Steve Mounier became a, a bit of a key player because Carl and Grant had been knocking them in for fun up till that point, really. Even when Town weren't playing well, Carl and Grant was scoring. Although um, we need to acknowledge the fact that he only actually got 18 goals this season, not 19, because there's no way that goal against Luton was actually his. But uh, <laughs> we'll let him have it but uh but yeah i mean steve mounier who had not really done very much up to that point and we've talked about it before but that we've the, with steve mounier there was always that sense of he's a cult figure but he was the kind of cult figure where it's like oh we like him despite the fact that he's a bit rubbish um rather than a you know uh you're our best you know like Lewis O'Brien will become a cult figure and possibly already is a cult figure now at Huddersfield Town. Steve Mounier was much more in the, oh, he's a bit crap, but we like him. He's a nice guy. So to see him go on that run, I mean, his first 10 appearances this season, he didn't score once. And those 10 appearances, by the way, came in the space of four months. And then between sort of the middle of December and the end of February, he got eight, eight goals in 14 games. And that was all his goals that he scored this season. So... Yeah, he happened to start scoring at exactly the same time that Carl and Grant basically stopped because after that Wigan game, I think it was, Carl and Grant went on a on a bit of a drought. And we should probably talk a little bit about Carl and Grant because I've done a few interviews this season for, you know, national radio or for the 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 program for the away team or uh, for other sites on on the sort of the reach network and they all sort of assume that Carl and Grant is the star player and the one that the fans love but he he's not really to be perfectly honest like he's we've to to sort of put a glimpse behind the curtain 
last summer, if we ran a story with Carlin Grant in the headline, it would get loads of clicks. Now, we almost don't bother because no one's interested in reading about Carlin Grant anymore. There doesn't seem to be that affection there, Matt. What, what do you put that down to? I think it, on our podcast, we've, we've got a couple of people on there who are huge fans of, of Carl and Grant. So I don't, I don't think it's all town fans. I think there's quite a section do really take to. And then there's another section that maybe don't. There's, there's probably several reasons for that. I think one of the main reasons is that um, when he came, you know, when uh, in the Premier League, we, we couldn't buy a goal. And then all of a sudden we get this, this young player from League One who's fast, he's quick, he's exciting and he's dynamic. And he's, he's scored four goals in nine games in the Premier yeah, League. Yeah, he was the top scorer last season, wasn't he? And all of a sudden, or I think everybody's kind of found a hero, if you like. And then as, as the season's gone through, uh, he, he I think he was built up and built up and maybe put a little bit higher than what he should have been you know, at that time. And I think as the season's worn on, people have kind of realised that mm, there's a striker here who maybe can't play up front. Not on his own uh, anyway. There's a, uh, a striker that's got a couple of weaknesses and, and maybe he's not quite as good as what they thought he was. So I think opinions kind of waned a little bit on that. His but, touch isn't great. Yeah, so... His, his touch is not great. You know, at the end of the day, end of the season, he's got mm. 19 goals. Okay, seven penalties and a couple yeah. of uh, dubious goal panel results in there, maybe. <laughs> but he's um, he's our top scorer. And 35%, I think he scored. You know, 35% of our goals, Stephen. And and I, to be honest, my sort of thinking on it has always been, I think people have been expecting him to leave sort of since about October. Mm. Um, the transfer links have been there and I think everyone sort of... There were definitely rumours after the Barnsley game when he was taken off at half-time. That, and, and to be honest, we we spoke to Fraser Campbell. We did an interview and obviously he's, you know, he's had a, a number of clubs and he's been there seeing, you know seen that done that and we asked him you know when you've got transfer rumors swirling around as they did throughout January for Carlin Grant does that does that sort of get in your head and he's like yeah it does it's like it, it shouldn't you know it shouldn't but it, it does affect you and you know it's maybe it's too convenient to look at look at when Carlin Grant's had his dry spells and see that his biggest dry spell and his sort of his biggest down period was throughout January and that once we got through the other end of January he suddenly started playing well again I think it's I don't think it's entirely down to that because he you know he played practically every he played every game apart from the cup he started every game he was fit yeah. for apart from, until the West Brom game at the end of the season there was a clear period where he just it, it, uh, he was just struggling because he had just fatigued and uh, you know mentally and physically maybe you know he was overplayed to a point as well because you know we kept him on the pitch for quite a sufficient amount of time whereas others tended to get rotated quite a bit yeah well that i i think he was overplayed but i think he was overplayed because there was just literally no other choice yeah well <laughs> danny no Cal- other- danny cowley said several times they were they were way too over reliant on him yeah well danny cowley when he came in he bigged up grant because he played against him for crawley on loan hadn't he and he played mm. left of a front three and he wanted to put him there fairly immediately and I think every time they had to play him through the middle, it was always, you know, a lack of choice of anybody else who could do the job. But I think, I think possibly with Kylan Grant, I think he's still quite a young player who is nowhere near his peak. And I think it would be fair to say that the things that Kylan Grant does well, he does really, really well. And the things that Kylan Grant doesn't do well, he does really, really badly. That's the problem. And he needs to probably just level out his game a little bit. And the other thing is he's quite a... He's not a selfish player, but he needs an unselfish player to play with him because what he really needs is is somebody to open up those pockets of space for him and, and, you know, who is quite willing to sort of 
run a marathon to try and create those opportunities three, four, five times a game where he can cut in from the inside or he can just ghost in to try and get on the end of a cross from the right. So he's a he's a slightly... I, I, I get the fans thing because he is a slightly... Not, not a luxury player or anything like that, but he is a, a, a player who needs a sort of certain set of circumstances around yeah. him rather than a, a Steve Mooney dare I say it who to be fair will just do the same thing in every game regardless of the context mm. or situation yeah we, we I mean we noted back in November that that his goal rate had slowed down people realised just leave the fullback because if it was Jaden mm. Brown or Flo Hadigen I you could just let him go because respectfully they were they are not the best particularly Hadigen I playing on his wrong side um, not the best deliverers of the ball into the box so just let them go and double up on Grant because he's the threat if the fullback gets the ball fine which sort of brings us on to to January um, so they obviously started the year as you mentioned with, with that awful defeat against Stoke which was as you alluded to Dave a, a complete collapse People forget they were 2-1 up in that game after 47, 48 minutes. Completely undeservedly, though. We, oh, yeah, that, absolutely. They'd offered nothing first half, and then we, me and you were sat together, and when they were 2-1 up, there was a genuine look of disbelief between us how they'd managed <laughs> to pull it off. But I remember podding after that game, and it was a real struggle to apportion any blame, really, because they were just shattered. <laughs> they just had nothing left in the legs, and... I mean, they they did they did a fairly heroic job over December, in my opinion. Yeah. As I said, I think that's the run they put together. That realistically, that's what saves your season. Um, and it, it was a titanic collapse, but a fairly understandable one. And importantly, they picked themselves up and got going again after an, after a while. But they did have another bad defeat yeah. before then. There, there were ten gate. I mean, we we can. You're quite right to point out the the. The, the, the fitness issues and just the fact they're exhausted because they'd had the injury crisis they hadn't got any players in in the January window yet and that but then they have 10 days 10 days off and they go to Barnsley and that was I I in my view a worse performance than the Stoke game because the Stoke game it was uh, um it was a sort of a batting collapse um as, as if you will like once they went three two down it it then just became four and five because they were trying to get back. But the Barnsley game, they they were outplayed for most of the game. They never looked like scoring. It took that Lewis O'Brien screamer out of nowhere to to pull them back into the game. And then I think didn't did, did, that was straight after Barnsley had scored the second, I think. And then they just offered nothing else. So it was it was a really poor performance. I think I'm right in saying they had announced before the Barnsley game that Emil Smith Rowe and Richard Stearman had signed. Um, and then and they, they were weren't in, eligible, to but play they weren't eligible to play. Yeah, it was but, that delay again, though. You know my, you know my theory on this. Yeah, yeah. But then we get to the Brentford game uh, at home the the following weekend, and you've suddenly got Smithrow is available to play. Stearman is available to play. I, I might, I, I think uh, Harry Toffolo was in then as well. Uh, yeah, he made his debut against Brentford as well. So suddenly they had these players who were. Who were in uh, in the door, and that finally let the Cowleys play the the four two three one that they'd always wanted to play, and this is kind of the fourth phase of the season. We, we've sort of 
I think you can split the season into five parts. The first was the Yan period, and then you've got the Cowley's arrival, and then you've got sort of the the injury crisis, sort of the December time, and then you've got after the players arrived in in January, and it was pretty immediately apparent from that game, wasn't it, Matt? That that these players were going to make a difference. Yeah, it was a good performance against Brentford. Um, Richard Stearman was outstanding on his on his debut that day. I remember thinking when we signed him, I was like, oh, it's another... I think everyone did. Another yeah. Tommy Elphick. Because he was signed... John Stankovic was playing quite well at the mm. time. Physically, he struggled against, especially against Sam Vokes, against Stoke City, where he was he, he was mauled, if you like. But, you know, he was, he was playing quite well at the time. He, he looked quite good. Mm. And then we brought another sort of 32, 33-year-old centre-back in. And all of a sudden, you've got two on the books. And you're kind of thinking... You know, in terms of squad building, you, you're wondering if the balance is right. But Stearman came in and he didn't look like an old 32-year-old either. He looked like quite a young 32-year-old with a lot of a lot of miles left. And he um, he performed really well at the start of the season and then particularly well at the end as well. He had a little break uh, and then he came mm. back towards the end. And I thought it was, uh, we'll, we'll scrub Millwall from men, from memory. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> prior to that, um, he, uh, he, was, he was very good in that little run against uh, West Brom, Sheffield Wednesday in particular. And half a million pounds, Harry Toffler. That's an absolute steal, isn't it? Yeah, you know, as soon as the Cowleys were linked, um, people started linking players from Lincoln. There's a lot of linkage going on there, isn't there? But <laughs> people started linking players from Lincoln straight away, and he was the one player that people put two and two together because obviously we didn't have a left back. Congolo wasn't working out. Jaden Brown's in his first season, and there's no backup, so he was the, um, the obvious link to make, if you like. And uh, he's he's been great as Harry Toffler, and it's not just the player. And it's not just on field, off the field. He's a great character, and um, I think he's he's certainly somebody. When, when you're building a squad and you're building a character of a squad, he, somebody like him is incredibly important because on the field he's great, off the field he's great. His interaction with the fans is is really good, and I'm sure for people in the media like you, he's the fact that he fronts up all the time as well for interviews yeah. is is also really good. Um, so for me, Harry Tuffalo was a great sign, and I'm really looking forward to him building on that next year and and getting getting used to championship level because he did tail off a bit towards the end but you know who didn't and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what he can bring next year um, without the Cowleys and I think he'll continue as well I don't think he's just a Cowley player I think he could play in a number of different systems and, and formations he's a good player as Harry Tuffle uh, and then finally Emil Smith-Rowe he, he struggled a bit in the first half against Brentford or not struggled but he was pretty anonymous in the first half against Brentford um, on his debut but then the second half so I think he had to sort of 15 minutes after the break and then he was taken off and we started to say, oh, okay, this is why they've signed him. He and didn't get what he was supposed to do that first half. He mm-hmm. he was he didn't know whether he should be dropping deep to get the ball because Town were playing deep on the day or if he should be pushing up and trying to support the striker. But then at half-time, it was clear the Cowleys had said, get him on the ball. You know, I don't care if he's got a man on him, get him onto the ball. And that 15-minute cameo was... Yeah, it was it was pretty special, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, you probably say that he's up there with some of the best loans that the, the football club's ever done. You know, Ben Thornley in his first ever loan at Huddersfield was an amazing player. Aaron Moy and Emil Smith Rowe, you can you can throw him up there as well. He, I think you could pr- probably say that he helped save the season, particularly towards the end as well, and the goal against West Brom uh, at the start. I thought he struggled with some aspects. He, the the quality was obvious from from the start when he gave him the ball. The quality was so obvious. Physically, I thought he struggled in the first sort of handful of games, and and also tracking back, you know, knowing when to tra- when to drop off uh, and and drop back in and help defensively. But 
for for a nineteen year old, I thought he learned learned very quickly and he got up to speed very quickly and um he became probably our best player in the in the last sort of quarter of the season as well. I thought it was it was great and he's certainly destined for the Premier League very soon. Just to go back to Toffolo, there's another player I think who's a very, very good player, but then he's tailed off as the season's gone on because even with the breakthrough lockdown, he's not played championship level before and it is a bit faster it is a bit more physical there is a bit more to it and I think next season I think he'll be sort of a bit better adjusted to it and he'll be able to sort of conserve himself a little bit more because when he came he was just just running constantly up and down that flank I mean me and Steve said on the podcast more than once didn't we that that whole flank is covered that whole flank is absolutely fine but he just by the end of the season, I think it just run out of a little bit of steam. To be fair, which you can understand because the the, the fixture schedule, you know, after lockdown, was you know game every three days, and he's so energetic. But I mean, even even Lewis O'Brien ran out of puff at one point, and, and yeah. he admitted that. So <laughs> if Lewis O'Brien's running out of of energy, and we know what a fuel tank he's got, then I think you can forgive other players for for that as well. But the biggest yeah. marker is that I think you sign him for half a million quid. And if you were so inclined, you could sell him for three million quid tomorrow yeah, on what yeah. he's shown so far. So that that shows you the level of player they were able to bring in. But I think with ESR, it's worth just going back to him for a minute because the, the, the Cowl is having to manage from game to game and having to change and having to constantly tinker and adjust. And there are a lot of... This season at various times, I think one of the things that's really cost town is having to play round pegs in square holes almost constantly. ESR just made that whole front three effectively, the two men either side and the striker, just work so much better because he was so comfortable going left or right. Whereas the other players who you've tried at 10, you know, O'Brien, the experiment with O'Brien didn't really work because he his natural inclination is just to sit a bit too deep and... Bakuna's not a ten because it's he just hasn't really got the the discipline involved and he being a ten is quite an unselfish role and it's quite a not a thankless task but it, it's it's such a speci- highly specific role that you need a specialist. So when he came in, you saw that Grant looked happier, Campbell and Mounier both looked happily up top, and he helped Willock out on that right side. Yeah. And then the fact they were able to bring Pritchard in a couple of times and shift ESR right. I think just help get some minutes in Pritchard's legs. Um, but, you know, Pritchard is a separate conversation. The other the other signings that you sort of touched on him, Dave, was was, uh, was Chris Willock and Jonas Lerzel as well, who came in after after Camille Grabara got that injury. And yeah, I mean they they were they were very all or nothing, I think, after the after the January signings, I think the way I've described it before is that their ceiling with the new signings kept getting higher and higher, but I don't think the floor moved very much no. for them, unfortunately. Um, you know, you think of those those games against Cardiff uh, at home or against the away to Swansea where they, they fought so hard to, to come back from, from a goal down and then immediately just blew it away. It was... Um, yeah, ext- and and the Fulham game, I think, kind of encapsulated it, where they, which was just a mental game, where it was you know the first five shots of the game all went in, and Town ended up losing three two. I think that that almost encapsulated what Town were like at, with the new signings, basically. But we also had a great deal of optimism, sort of going into lockdown. 
putting the Leeds game to one side because you know we've talked about that to death. Um, but against Bristol City and Charlton, and people point to the Charlton game because it was a, a four nil, um, so you can understand that. But that Bristol game for me was, mm. I think, the best. The XG played. of that game was yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the XG yeah. they should have had it was nearly five, wasn't it, Steve? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, which is just just incredible. And we remember being in the press room after and saying to Danny what the XG was, and even he was slightly taken aback. I mm. think. I maintain, as I've maintained on this podcast throughout, I just think if if town hadn't have if lockdown hadn't have happened, I think town would have been safer a lot sooner. I genuinely yeah. do. I think they just they would have found a little bit more consistency and they would have found a level and it, they'd have been all right. But lockdown comes along and it just I think it gave Danny Cowley too much time to think and tinker. With everything, I think it gave the players a very odd situation to have to deal with physically and mentally, and it just killed any momentum absolutely stone dead. And then the the very weird situation of playing without fans and the things you don't think about that I spoke about on the podcast. You know the the way a manager has to sort of adjust his behaviour and the very different feeling of it all. It's not just a case of, well, they earn the money, they should be able to play with fans or not. It's it's such a different world without fans that it just then became a bit of a struggle and a bit stodgy. And the Cowleys had to go back from when it looked like they might finally be able to sort of chart a course and this is what we're doing and it's up to you to come and break us down. They had to start again and go back to literally managing from a, a game to game basis, and it wasn't it wasn't sexy. It was incredibly pragmatic, but it was all about just getting an inch closer to the line every single time. And it, it they did it eventually, but it was there's no denying it was even the Birmingham game. I think we can all now look back on that and say, well, Birmingham truly were rotten. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, exactly. Truly were rotten, and I don't just mean in that game. I mean. When they, they didn't win any of their down. last 16 or something like that, no. did they? Some, something along those lines. So it really was a case of them having to sort of take the opportunities as and where it presented itself. But also, you know, the the Luton game for me, I think far more than the Lincoln game, I think the Luton game was the low point of the season for me. Yeah, definitely. Would you go along with that, Matt? Yeah, yeah. I think I mentioned earlier that I was quite blasé all the way through the season, just thinking, now nah, we won't get relegated. Some of these players are too good. We've got Grant who can score goals. We've got Bakuna who can come on for 10 minutes and turn a game on its head. I think at, at that stage, relegation hadn't even entered my head at any point. I just thought we were fine and we were on an upward trajectory. And then, and then lockdown came back. To be honest, I never wanted to see football. I didn't really want to see this season again. And, uh, I'd have been quite happy for it to be ended. Um, but it came back and it was the right thing to do was definitely the right thing to do to to carry on the season now now we've seen it all so I'm happy that this season's come to a, a proper end um, but to not digress too much from the point yeah that, that looting game was the one afterwards where I, th- I sat there I thought oh we've got some serious problems here and we've only got three games remaining and that was probably the first time where I, I sat there and thought I could actually get relegated the, thing, the problem with that looting game is just all the things Town did badly, they just did really badly on that day. They just really... What's the opposite of a greatest hit? I guess you could add a letter, couldn't you? I can't say, because you yeah. uh, you make me not swear on this podcast. <laughs> but 
it it was just all of those problems just coming back, and I mean even the mental problems because when Town went one, yeah, when Town mm. went one nil down, they were done. They were absolutely yeah. toasted, and it was it was poor. And it, I remember that game. Danny was on the touchline, and he was just he was just trying to get any sort of reaction from anyone. You know, he he was he was trying everything he could. It praise, uh, you know, to be fair pointing out a few and he just got nothing absolutely nothing from anyone and it was it was yeah that was comfortably the low point for me yeah i would i would agree with that and i think post lockdown is is the worst by a mile town played under the cowleys unquestionably i think it's it's quite clear now from a couple of interviews that mark devlin's given and that lee bromby's given and from from other things that we've heard from, from various other places that that the decision to get rid of the cowleys came before the season even resumed um that that or at least it was <laughs> it had been mooted let's put it that way because you know they've mark devlin basically said that that they started looking at everything sort of in not long after he arrived which was sort of january february and that the cowleys were initially involved in those conversations the early conversations and then they weren't and he said that that, that sacking the cowleys was on the horizon for a long time i think the reason for the shock really was just the timing of it because obviously well not just the timing of it but the main reason for the shock was it just it came straight after that that West Brom game which was a brilliant tactical performance where they you know they picked a team that none of us would have picked they picked a team that when that team sheet came out we were all going what and and it was exactly the right lineup. It was exactly the right plan. It works exactly to the way that they we, envisioned it. We had to ditch that pod, and it, I mean, it literally went in the bin, Steve. Yeah. And I had I and I I maintain they were absolutely brilliant the way they plotted their way through that game. The mm-hmm. game management there, and I mean from players and from the Cowleys, was just absolutely brilliant. The way they switched the formations, the way they broke it into four quarters, and they had four distinct plans for each quarter that actually worked. And the way they really exploited a couple of West Brom's weaknesses, you looked at that and you thought, yeah, that's that's the first time I think it would be arguable to say that everything just worked. Everything went, this is what they wanted mm. to do. They did it. It worked. Let's all move on. But it was obviously very clear that the plan was always to be as soon as they were mathematically safe, they were gone. They were or done. mathematically down. Yeah, or mathematically down either way. But it's quite clear that was that was the case. And it just, mm. it just felt incredibly, I mean, not just shocking really it just felt incredibly ruthless really i think you know i i don't i don't really see the advantage of doing it at that moment and not waiting till after Millwall. if i'm brutally honest particularly when you've got your man lined up as we know for a fact they did from the the statement mm-hmm. alone rather than anything else that i don't know i still i, I still have a few issues with it <laughs> yeah i think we've obviously had a long time to to digest it now I mean, I would say that that everything we've just said about that West Brom win is part of the club's reasoning for why they wanted to make the change because there is a feeling that Town's best performances, best wins have largely come in games where they've counteracted the opposition strengths rather than Town being on the front foot. And in fact, we saw after lockdown, even before lockdown, to be perfectly honest, there were a lot of games where Town absolutely dominated the possession and didn't didn't 
create anything. Um, and that was the case against Wigan. It was the case against Luton. You know, they were completely on top in those games and just couldn't couldn't break anything down. And part of their reasoning that they've given for bringing in Carlos Corbran is that they they feel like he will be a sort of will stick to his guns and, and, and adhere to, to those sort of attacking principles sort of through thick and thin uh, and that they didn't want someone who was going to be so so sort of practical and pragmatic on a game-by-game basis. I think that's, we've said it before, I, I still personally think that's a little bit harsh given that we've seen that the Cowleys at Lincoln have been able to uh, adapt their style when the time was right, but um, it's it's apparent that the club felt that that things had to go in a different direction. Um, Matt, you've had a bit of time to digest it as well, obviously. What what are your thoughts on that change? Yeah, so um, the Cowleys leaving, uh, was it a shock? No, there were certain things that I'd, I'd picked up. Um, it wasn't anything to do with the on-field results. I thought the results were good. Um, as you've said a number of times, Stephen, that you know, two points from the opening nine games, you know, no club has ever survived that. They did. They did a good job for me. I thought. I thought they did a great job. Um, they came in. They lifted people. Uh, they lifted the fans. Um, Result-wise, you know, the style of play wasn't always great. But I, you know, like I keep saying, the results. It's a results-driven business, and they got the results needed to get us over the line. And I thought they deserved to. Uh, they, they built the platform, and they deserve to build on that platform for next season as well. Um, but there were a couple of little points whereby a little, a couple of little worries where um, I thought oh, something's not quite right here, and. You know, the whole Danny Simpson thing, Danny Cowley saying he wasn't sure about, or he didn't realise Danny Simpson wasn't going to be given that contract extension, which seemed a little bit fishy. Uh, the um, Stankovic one, um, you know, the, the strong rumour is Stankovic was offered a new contract with Huddersfield and, and Danny Cowley sat, sat there saying the club couldn't afford to to keep him, which didn't marry up again. And there's a couple of a couple of odd little things. And, and we interviewed um, Phil Hodgkinson in our our podcast as well and it was you who set me up Stephen with the question wasn't it with um you know it came through on the the panel which was just like are you quite happy with the cowlies and I expected Phil just to say yeah the results are going quite well you know we're looking forward to next season and uh um you know we'll, we'll hopefully build upon what we've done and that was it and I was expecting that and and move on but the um the answer was wasn't quite what I expected and it kind of made me sort of sit back and think uh oh, that wasn't really kind of he avoided the question didn't he yeah uh, a little bit he kind of but he kind of avoided it but answered it at the same time and he, he did mention a couple of things about um styles of play you know imprints on styles of play and um and at that point i just thought i'm not i didn't want to push it obviously because as, as a fan you know you want everything to be smooth sailing and you want Huddersfield to stay up and you, you, the last thing you want to do is be seen to be rocking any boats or anything so i was quite happy just to go oh okay um, but yeah. yeah, it didn't. It didn't quite seem seem right. Yeah, I mean, before we just move on to Corbran, I, I just want to you know want to say I think it was apparent from those January transfers that that they were looking at just get safe because mm. you know the, the signings they made it was it was four loanies uh, and and Richard Stearman who is thirty two and will be thirty three at the start of the new season and then Harry Toffolo is the only signing that they've made who's going to be there for the foreseeable future. Obviously Stearman's there for another year, but you know in terms of a long term project the only one they made in January was was Toffolo and it was apparent that they you know had had seen 
how bad that injury crisis was and as we've mentioned that they did so well to get through that but they just needed bodies in the door and yeah. the, the people they got in were I mean they really couldn't have done any better in that January window to be perfectly honest even even Andy King who was a bit underwhelming on the pitch we've heard nothing but good things um, about about the effect he's had off the pitch and that they needed those more leaders basically behind the scenes mm. so yeah, I, it would have been interesting to see what the Cowleys would have done in a in their first summer window um, because it, it, I, there's no guarantee that they would have you know gone for the same profile of player again. But the 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 insinuation is that that was that was what they were looking for. You know, was was more Harry Toffolo's, but but then it's like but Harry Toffolo's been a big success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have this big high from staying up and winning the West Brom game and then the, pretty much the day after you've got the low of losing the Cowleys and I think that was cushioned slightly for me because I kind of saw it coming a little bit and you know I, I, I one of the things I was quite not critical but I would I questioned from January onwards when the Cowleys got their players in I expected to see more of a, a pattern of play I expected to see more uh, more of what was them and I think that was a, a big problem for the club in that we didn't really have much of an identity going forward and I, I always think that maybe the club are looking, you know, ever since David Wagner has left, I think we're, we're constantly looking for David Wagner 2.0. And Dave made a, a great point in one of our WhatsApp, you know, one of our WhatsApp chats quite a while ago about uh, lightning in a bottle, uh, you know, and, and David Wagner was pretty much lightning in a bottle. Everything just, just went so well. He swept in, you know, he was, he's like a whirlwind. He swept in uh, the mat. He did, he did all, he pretty much did everything. He did the market and you know, the marketing sold itself, you know, the Wagner revolution and, I think Town have constantly been looking for someone who'll do the same thing again. You know, someone who'll come in and take everybody on this huge journey. Um, and to me, Carlos Corbran is is one of those uh, coaches who's, you know, I listened to his interview. It was good. He was passionate. And I think he's got the ability to get people excited. You know, that if the football's anywhere near as good as what uh, he's been serving for, uh, you know, as part of the lead stuff, then I think that'll take a lot of people, you know, get a lot of people on board as well. You know, it's quite, quite exciting. But, but the, the worry is that town could, you know, it's, it's a complete unknown and town really next year could finish anywhere, anywhere from sort of first to 24th really. Um, and that's, that's the kind of thing. It's the great unknown and the mystique of it. And, and I think that's partly why it's an exciting. Well, it's a complete unknown, isn't it? That's the thing. And, and, Again, I think part of the reason is they didn't want solid and unspectacular. They they have a bigger eye, bigger bigger vision than that. Um, we we did our big fan survey at the end of the year, and uh, that I've mentioned already. And we asked on that, who do you blame for Towns' failures, and who do you credit for their successes? And the answers for the weaknesses were kind of divided. It was Jan, it was the board, it was Phil, it was the recruitment team. But the for the who do you credit for the successes? It was the Cowleys, like mile, like ten times as many votes as as, as anyone else. Um, and and I would completely agree with that. And as I say, I think my 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 personal feelings are I think well known at this point. Um, but I am sort of trying to put the 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 other hat on uh, for the sake of I this wouldn't conversation. have made the change personally. I think. You know, you hear rumours that the cow has been difficult behind the scenes, but if the cat, if the you know, if they're if they're being difficult, you've got to you know, as somebody who doesn't hundred percent know what's gone on there, you, you kind of then say, well, if they're being difficult, who's managing them? You know, who's who's kind of guiding them and managing them? Um, I don't know. Could that have been salvaged somewhere? You know, along the lines, it it, it seems a shame really to have built this platform you know and which is which is going upwards you know not not rocket wise you know Cal, you know Corbran could come in and you know get us on board the rocket ship and we could fly up whereas the Cowleys seem to be steady slow and steady progress and um 
it certainly wasn't as exciting as the potential that Carlos Corbran can bring, I think. But it, Corbran could also, it could also potentially go very wrong. But I think that's part of the whole excitement, isn't it? Well, I, th- I think what you have to understand is that the, the, the element of risk and the element of gamble here is, like you just said, Matt, it is... It is so massive that what this decision has done needs to come with um, a massive sense of accountability from everyone now in that club. So with the Cowleys, you had a results. They were very, very results driven managers. And one way or another, they would have hooked you into mid table. Without a shadow of a doubt, I don't think they'd have done more than that next season because I think that squad would have needed three transfer windows total to turn round. So I think you'd have been looking the season after. I think you'd probably be you'd be disappointed if you weren't playoff contenders in you know in that mix. Now this now you've thrown all of that out, then people now have to be accountable. You know, this the attitude about the recruitment department is that they were responsible for the good transfer window before the promotion season, but all the bad ones have always been somebody else's fault. That can't continue. If if this recru- if the recruitment is bad at this point, then somebody has to be held accountable. Lee Bromby and Mark Devlin have come in, and they're both talking from, you know, I, I've joked about it with Steve, but it's quite clear there's there's effectively like I mean I'm not saying it's been a physical thing but there's a style sheet you know we're going to play the same home and away we're going to play attacking football we're going to get on the front foot it's a revolution there's going to be no limits again we want to go and it's like yeah it's like all of this stuff is they're, they're selling what should be best practice anyway as a revolution which is slightly worrying but again, these people are extremely well paid. These decisions have been taken. They've got to be accountable. If it doesn't, if it works, we must lord them to high heaven. And I include me and Steve in that. We must say, mm-hmm. absolutely exceptional move from the chairman. Brilliant move from Bromley, etc. And we will. We absolutely will. But if if it doesn't work, they can't expect to sit there and go, oh, well, and everybody just stays mm. in the job. Everything carries on as, yeah, everything carries on as normal and they try something else. And that amount of pressure, you know, I'm merely pointing it out, that amount of pressure hasn't come from fans. It's not come mm. from external factors. It has come from within themselves. They've created this situation. And I just, I find when you look back at what has happened in the last... 12 to 18 months at that football club how many positions are changed how many new people are in there how many people behind the scenes have been changed where that squad is right at this moment i i really really hope it works because you're exactly right matt next season could be first could be 24th it really is like who knows here and the other side of it is they've got to have a bit of courage with it if, if they are going to commit to this and say this is what they're doing, if they lose the first eight games, <laughs> they can't... If they have to go back to that, then I'm sorry, that's where that accountability comes in and people have to be held responsible. And again, what I keep coming back to is this is a situation of their own making. This is not something the fans have been demanding. The fans were unhappy with the football but I think that the broader view was that the Cowleys were doing what I said which is just trying to get another inch towards safety 
all the time. Just uh, the, again, a little bit of a revisionism. The football under David Wagner wasn't great, but but if you win, if you win five games out of seven, then it doesn't matter, does it? Because you've got fifteen points and you're happy and you're cruising and you're going up the table. It's absolutely fine. And I think it's just, I just keep coming back to the fact that this is just not that I think it's necessarily a bad decision. I've I. If they truly believe this and they want to go this way and they want to commit and they want to put money to it and they want to completely reshape the club, that's fine. But they're all under the spotlight now and I'm just really surprised that they've done that to themselves and not gone one more season with the Cowleys, get herself properly settled in the Championship again and then, do you know what, we might blow them then because we don't think they can take us to the next level. But it's just, yeah, I just still think it's an extraordinary position really. I would say plain sort of devil's advocate because I agree with everything you just said to be perfectly honest but I can understand why they've looked at the rebuild that needs to happen the fact that they do need to bring in realistically 12 or 15 players because that's how many have left Um, they need to bring in 12 or 15 players this summer to make up the numbers just to replace those that have gone why they've looked at that and gone okay well this is the time to start the big project rather than having another year of you know signing someone who i think it's quite clear that they came to see the counties as their their sort of firefighter manager which i don't think is what they intended when they appointed them and i don't think is how the fans viewed them it's not how we viewed them but i think it's quite clear that that's how the club came to view them and so given that fact they it makes a kind of sense to say okay well they've done their job now we now want to rebuild for the future we're gonna have to bring in 15 players anyway let's get the new guy to build that squad rather than have another year of letting them put their players in place and then having to dismantle it and bring build it back up again Uh, again like there's nothing there i disagree with steve i i i think all these points are valid i just still think it's it's an unbelievable amount of pressure on and I mean Matt you as a fan I mean me and Steve we constantly say we are at the end of the day Stephen is a journalist I'm an analyst but we are both heavily invested neutrals at this point we really are but as a fan I I completely get being a, a lot being sort of seduced by the new and all that sort of thing but I get that but do you are you sort of with me on the accountability thing do you think that it is time that people were sort of if this is what you're going to do, then you have to do it, and it has to be a success. Yeah, look, I think the main thing really is that everything's got to marry up. Like, look, I'd hate going back to David Wagner too much because you can kind of hark back to the good old days, if you like, at certain points. Mm-hmm. But everything just fit together brilliantly under David Wagner, you know. And it's not just a case of players. <clears throat> it's not just a case of, you know, the fans. Everything fit, you know, like I mentioned before. The marketing fit, you know, that the we had the uh, North Stand loyal yeah. move to the South Stand, you know, to create the atmosphere behind behind uh, behind the goal, and that that was such a big part as well. You know, all of a sudden having a noisy stadium to to help drive the players on. Uh, the players bought into it. Every player bought into uh, what David Wagner brought, mm. uh, and, and and so did everybody. Did the fans did the board did, and what to make this a success everybody's got to be pushing in the same direction and everybody's got to play their part uh, and the, you know and I'll I'll play the part of the Huddersfield town fan on on the podcast if you like but if you look around social media the forums etc the main bone of contention at this moment and I don't I'm not going to hammer any individuals because that's not fair especially because we don't fully understand the process because we no one's ever sat down and and shown us you know how how exactly how it works but the the main bone of contention really is that recruitment 
and you know Danny Cowley and Danny Cowley I think went you you'll correct me Stephen because I think he might have said this in your presence but Danny Cowley said something along the lines of good management is 90% recruitment and if Carlos Corbrand's not in charge of that I was quite happy with the Cowleys um you know they brought in their own analyst didn't they from Lincoln and they, you know the January window went quite well so I was quite happy with them being in charge or, or having a big say in recruitment because I thought they were making solid signings whereas we're now going back to summer 2018 summer 2019 in that it's been made and I know I know there's been mentions of transfer committees etc but it's not new it's it's been around at Huddersfield since 2013 has this this method you know we we had Ross Wilson and and Stuart Weber etc and and um, one of my main worries is Lee Bromby's a, a really bright guy really you know you've interviewed him really intelligent guy you know I, he's someone I've I've known since I was a kid, etc. Is Lee, and I think his 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 head and his his heart are in the right place, and I think he's a a smart guy, and he's well he's well thought of in football, and I think he's a good he's, he's a solid appointment in that role. Um, but he's not recruitment led. Uh, previously, we had Stuart Weber and Ross Wilson, and they were very recruitment led head of football operations, and a lot of um, players came from what they. Uh, what they've done previously at previous clubs like uh, Derby and Wolves, etc. Ross was at, uh, no, he wasn't at Derby, he got linked to Derby, he was at Watford. Uh, and uh, and Stuart Webber was at, you know, Wrexham. It's how we knew about Danny Ward, you know, to get Danny Ward on loan, he was at Wrexham, was, was Stuart Webber. And uh, he was at uh, Wolverhampton as well. So um, Yeah, I think the other the, thing the, that they're trying to capture with the David Wagner thing is not just the, the capturing the lightning in the bottle and the, ooh, what's this? And the, the sort of the curiosity around it. But also they've talked about uh, they feel like there are other markets that are untapped that they can go to and have success in the transfer market the way that they did with um, with, with Germany when David Wagner came in. I mean, the obvious assumption there would be that you're looking at Spain and and you know perhaps the Iberian Peninsula. Yeah, what's what's really what's really noticeable is that they they've made a, a big a big deal of the academy, and I think what we'll probably see is a, a number of younger players come through and a number of young players that they will look to develop from the B team into the into the first team. And, you know, it's an approach that's really worked well for Leeds United. It's worked well for Brentford in particular. Brentford have done this well, and it's and it's worked okay for Huddersfield Town in the past. And there's a lot on this new recruitment department, you know, which I think as Huddersfield fans, we look at that and we, we look back at summer 2018, in particular, and we look at Diakabis, your Mbenzas, uh, Sobies, and the worry really is that if this department are making these decisions and they've outlasted several managers as well, um, the accountability has got to be in that department. And like Dave says, you know, it says, it says, um, you know, it, it feels very much like they've been credited with, you know, the summer 2016, which I'm led to believe was very David Wagner heavy, yet. Any window after that, which is deemed unsuccessful, uh, all the fingers have been pointed at them. You know, and this is this happens. You know, in in a workplace, uh, it happens in my workplace. Is that as soon as a manager leaves, every everything that's bad is their fault all of a sudden, and everybody points the finger and goes, "Oh, that spreadsheet, yeah, that was that was his. You know, he's, he's left now, and we'll we'll change that." And it kind of felt when we interviewed Phil in September on our podcast. Um, I asked, we asked this question obviously because it was one of the ones that came, you know, one of the ones that was popular at the time, and uh, it felt that. Uh, for me, it felt very much that David Wagner had been blamed for that window internally, whereas my understanding is that he wasn't big on the whole recruitment thing. All all people would do is they would do the analysis, they would work out what players might be available in what bracket and budget, etc. And then what they would do is they would put snip snip the different uh, videos together and they would put several names under. So David Wagner would say, right, I need a left winger. And then they would come back with several names and diff- you know, different analysis stats. Uh, all sorts of different algorithms uh, to show him. And then he would go, right, I'll have that one. 
Um, but the problem is if if these players that have been put under the manager's nose aren't good enough, then the managers have also got to say, so this is not just recruitment team, but the managers also got to say, no, these are useless. You know, I need someone who's going to fit. So everything's got to fit together really. And and if if the recruitment team do have a, a bit of a shocker again, then they've got to also be held accountable. Everybody's got to, but everybody's got to pull in the same direction. And I'm, I'm quite excited and looking forward to it. And also, especially the recruitment team do get hammered, but you've also got to give praise where it's due as well. They've, they've you know, they've had a, a Callan Grant's not, difficult but they've gone out and identified it and we've got him for 1.5 million rising to two that's that's fantastic business is that and that that could make us a lot of money you know if if it wasn't for covid we'd be adding a zero onto the end of that i think <clears throat> and um so that's so you've got to you've got to also praise as well as grumble i think that was a, a radio uh, fo- football phone it wasn't it back in sheffield but you've got to you've got to be able to look at things and you've got to be able to credit and discredit at the same time. I think that's very important when looking at all departments. And Dave's very right in that people can't hide behind or shouldn't hide behind other people in terms of decision making. If a decision's been made, don't hide behind it. You own, you know, people have got to own what they've uh, what they've said. But I, I think I think one thing that's probably overlooked as well is that players get better with time. Um, people get, you know, people in roles get better with time as well. So hopefully, you know, I've, I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll they'll do well. I think Lee's a good appointment in head of football operations. He's, you know, he's he's very switched on. And I think if somebody's not ready for the role and it reflects badly on him, so I would imagine that he'll say, right, need someone else instead. So, um, yeah, I'm, I think Dave's right to, I know I've laboured on this quite a lot, but Dave's very right in what he said. But I think we've got to, uh, got to look at, each department now and we've got to give them a clean slate as well under this new one i know they've been there before but i think it's very important that we we um we don't forget but we give this this is it i the thing is i'm not i don't want anyone to come away from this podcast with the impression that i'm against you know what has happened and i'm outraged because i'm really not i can completely see the nuts and bolts of the decision but what my concern is is this is just I'm worried there could be people within that club who are going to implode because it is is if you don't get off to a good start, it is going to become increasingly difficult to mm-hmm. stay on this path and to keep committing to it. And Town have to be incredibly brave. And I like I have as an analyst, Steve as a journalist, we may not be fans, but we're desperate for Town to do well, you know, because it gives. Steve, loads mm-hmm. of stuff to write about. It makes life interesting for me, looking into various things. We both really, really want town to do well. But you're exactly right, Matt, in that I think they're going down a development path. And a development path is is it's difficult. It's not it's not easy and it's not something that happens in the shortest pre season in football history. It's something that takes yeah, the, the- two years. Two years, realistically, to to, because what you have to do is you. It's it's not just about the players at the club. It's about setting the pathway, setting things behind the scenes, making things sure things off the picture, right, etc. And I'm not against them trying to go for lightning to strike twice with with Wagner, you know, in terms of trying to have that sort of cultural shift within the club. But it it's just. They're going down a development path in a results-driven league. And I know all leagues are driven by results, but the championship, three wins can be the difference between 12 places. Mm. It is a crazy, crazy league. So I just I just want it to work. So a good example it, of um, development is, you know, it's very difficult to blood players, you know, when, when you don't have the, the platform, yeah, the, ba- yeah. you know, the, base, the base goods, if you like. Um, 
I hate to use Leeds United as an example too much, but mm. you know you've, you've got to look at the, the ones who are successful and uh, and also look at what got them there. And, and they they've had a number of players come through in the last you know sort mm-hmm. of five ten years, like Lewis Cook and Alex Moa. And yes, you've mm-hmm. got to go out and you've got to scout and get the best mm. talent coming through. But by the same account, you've got to get them into the first team. And when you get them into the first team, you've got to have enough good players around them so that they don't struggle. And a good example of this is uh, Mick McCarthy at Wolves when Wolves were sort of before they had the the buyout they were sort of finishing 17th 16th 15th in the uh, Premier League and Mick McCarthy was coming under fire from the Wolves fans saying we've got this great academy why are no kids coming through and Mick McCarthy would always say look it takes six months to get a young player through you know and during that six months of first team uh, first team football he can make a number of mistakes uh, and those mistakes could relegate us. You've got to allow mistakes to happen. That's the thing. You've, you've got to... So what do you want? Do you want us to be relegated or do you want us to blood youngsters? And and he was. I could completely understand what he was saying and, and what we've got to make sure is that we don't throw too many young players in initially and we've got enough good players around them to be able to help and, and cajole these through. So a good a good example would be Richard Stearman's playing right centre-back. Um, D'Amico Dehaney in this little running lockdown looked great didn't he? Uh, well, not great, but he looked a lot better than he had previously. He did, he did quite well. Uh, I, I had D'Amico Dehaney tagged as somebody who was going to struggle to force his way in, but you know he's playing alongside a good, experienced player in Stearman and he's got Kachunga ahead of him. You know, you've got to be able to put players around the young ones and, and plot proper, I know we used this before, or just for proper pathways, but you've got to be able to have the players in the first team no. already to help them through and, and manage them through games and make sure that any mistakes that they make are covered well off. The, the thing that was music to my ears really was we, we Mel and I had a, an interview with, with Lee Bromby a, a week or so ago and we were worried that they were going down a route where say they expected D'Amico Dehaney to be their first choice right back next season and Ramani Edmonds-Green would be the backup and that they were going to be happy with that because sort of the, the, the briefings we've been getting from the club have been um, we are going to be fielding some academy players next season and yeah they are going to have to play some academy players next season but my concern was oh, are they do they actually think that that like D'Amico Dehaney, Jaden Brown, Josh Caroma are gonna, you know, suddenly become championship standard players who week in, week out, who are up to playing forty six games. Because if they think that, then nothing against those players at all. But it doesn't happen overnight. You know, no. those those players need need time. And as you say, it wouldn't be fair to them to throw them in. But but Lee Bromby, to be fair to him said okay we didn't even mention right back but we said you know what are the priorities this summer or something like that and he immediately said well we've only got really D'Amico Dehaney at right back so we need to do some work there you know we need to get a player in and maybe mm. you know look to get someone a bit more experienced in and it was like oh thank god that you said that because I mean to Scott High it looks like Scott High looks like is the the sort of the next next one to sort of make that Lewis O'Brien leap but they're looking at getting him out they're looking at him get, getting him out on loan you know Matty Daly they're looking at, at getting out on loan mm. potentially as well so th- I was I was really worried when this first came out that, that they might be being unrealistic about how much they were going to have to lean on these youngsters but I, I've been pleased to hear a few things that, that suggest that they're not. What's uh, what's really interesting as well guys to, to notice is that um, I think Dave's mentioned it as a bit of a rebadging. I mentioned it as a bit of a rebadging on WhatsApp as well. To be fair, that of the the B team over the EDT and and but once you start to look into that a bit more and you see who's involved, Danny Schofield and they're the, the looking to transition more from this to the first team. And I'm not a massive fan of the new academy structure yet. I think 
all of the players that have uh, succeeded so far uh, are from the old system. You know, Lewis O'Brien, you know, was at the club from, I think he was nine. He was at the club. Uh, Matty Daly fought, came mm-hmm. in as an under-14. Ryan Schofield was definitely nine, you know, that sort of age. But then De- Dehaney, Brown, Edmund Green are all players that the they new did. System, but the new system obviously opens different yeah. markets yeah. as well. And one thing that they've done better in the new system than what they did in the old system was they've loaned players out to get good you know, good quality games under their belt because the the the, dif- the difference from um, the un- you know the old under twenty ones, twenty threes, you know, cat two under twenty ones to the first team of the championship is a massive jump, mm. and you know it's an even bigger jump from you know your your under under eighteens in the you know the fourth tier of the you know the triple P system to our first team. So what I think Lee Bromby in particular was the one I think who brought this in with the whole work experience. I noticed that Lee sent a couple to his old club Liversidge as well, which is cool and. Um, I think what's really noticeable is that these loans have really worked. You know, Romani Edmonds Green was a player I I watched in the the academy as an under eighteen, as a seventeen year old, and I was like, yeah, it looks okay, but he didn't really stand out as anything particularly special at the time. But he's gone on loan to Brighouse, and Brighouse, you know, it's a good club, but it's not close to the football league but it's made such a massive difference it made a huge difference to Romani Edmonds Green and he's then gone on loan the next season into non-league to uh, Bromley I think it was and he's played midfield for Bromley right back centre back and he's and then that's put him on a great platform then to go to Swindon and look like one of Swindon's better players in a promotion you know in the second half of the promotion season yeah O'Brien going to Bradford he says it made a man out of him yeah and this is something the club are doing really well so I think what we'll see is players coming in and the B team strengthening a lot of They'll get a lot more quality games. I know they promised this in 2017. They said they'll be uh, they'll be going on foreign tours, and uh, they did at first. You know, they used to go over to Germany mm. and play Bayern Munich with the B team. That all seemed to tail off a bit in the last mm. sort of 18 months. You know, really with relegation in particular. Um, but I think we'll see that a lot more now, and I think we'll see quality games for the B team, and mm. we'll see quality loans as well. Now mm. that we seem to have built up a network, I'm quite excited to see how Kit Elliott does at Cork, for example, and. I think we'll start to see a lot more players coming through from that system. And I think this is a way of just bridging those gaps. And it's uh, with youth football in particular, it's always about bridging the gaps and how you can bridge the gap because town did that badly before they would. But this, this is the thing. All of these things are like massive positives and I'm absolutely, absolutely on board with that. But they're also the key reasons why this system takes two years to put in place properly you know you you need to have you need to have maybe four or five players out on loan each season of which one of which you are looking at definitely coming back and integrating the following season so it it's it's difficult i think the noise is about carlos corran is that he is extremely good at developing players and he is i have been told anecdotally by a couple of people he is excellent on the motivation side he's really really good at getting reactions from people and and getting more than even they think is in there and I think that bodes very very well for town going forward but I I think the the sort of noises about the development stuff and all that I think it's great I think the B team is you know it's just it's basically just calling things by different names but I think it's good that they're clearly looking at things and changing things and being willing to to learn and move on but I think fans the fan side of it is you've got to be wary of putting any stock in it for next season because it just takes time it takes time but it's good that you know i come back to it it's good that town have a plan and they want to change the culture and they want to do this but it is just 
there is just so much pressure now. It's untrue. Yeah, and it's it's a hell of a time to do it as well when we're going into a transfer market that's complete yeah. unknown financially. Uh, it's uh, just adds even more sort of pressure onto it, and and yeah. they run the risk of of coming out of this looking like they've taken an unnecessary gamble. Um, and there's an argument that even if it comes off, that that's what they've done. To be honest, um, but yeah, they they obviously felt it had to happen. If it comes off, like I said, we you know you have to heap nothing but praise on them. That's that's the thing, and you we will genuinely be the first to do that. But mm-hmm. we we try and remain not neutral, but we remain very analytical on our podcast. But if it doesn't come off, you know, the fans have every right to start asking questions, and that's just it's just it's an angle they didn't need to necessarily expose themselves to, which I just is why I just think it's odd. Yeah. Very quickly then, what are you guys expecting for next season now? I'll start with you, Matt. Um it's one of those it's like say it's one of those where we could come anywhere between first and twenty fourth next year, isn't it? It's uh, it's such an a mix an open an open book. It's and I think that's what makes it kind of exciting. Uh, because the last few years we've kind of known what's what's coming. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm expecting to see a a more exciting brand of football, but I don't think it'll be there for, straight away. It will it'll take time to build up. Um, I think we'll see some players maybe look better than what they did previously. By that I mean I think some players who were a bit out of favour with the Cowleys may look completely different under Carlos Corberan. Um But you know there are there are going to be a number of players who look different under a different manager, and I think that's going to be exciting to see. And again, that's probably another another detriment of not having that pre-season as well. But I, I, I would expect we're going to see an overhaul of the squad, uh, a different style of football which will get better over time and hopefully progress on and off the field. Yeah, Dave? Um, I think it's difficult to say, as, as Matt has pointed to, because we don't know what the recruitment's going to be like at the moment. And I know the window's extended, but also the clock is ticking. The first game is in, what, uh, 39 days, I think it is, as of today. And there are a couple of obvious gaps that town need to fill and there are teams that have sat in about their recruitment really really well in the championship so they need to get a move on and and the the thing is from a fan's point of view as well you can't beat new signings they need to get that going because you know conversely nothing is going to cause more uh angst and aggro than a lack of signings you know if we get to saturday and next week and it's two weeks after the season two and a bit weeks after the season's end they still haven't got anyone through the door then they're going to end up starting to get the uh you know the pelters on on that bastion of common sense twitter but i think next season i think mid-table they would absolutely snap your snap your hands wrists elbows and everything <laughs> off right now for that i'm i think it's wide open i really do philosophies take time culture changes take time i would love them to set off like a steam train i really really would and that could happen with the right people in and with the adrenaline surge of everything changing and with a new tactical system catching a few people cold so Let's see if that happens. I've no idea. Yeah, so Sheffield Wednesday have got minus 12 for next season. There's the potential that other mm. clubs are facing difficulties. So we, it'll be interesting to know what mm. other clubs look like as well as us next year. Derby likely as well. 
So it could be that we could get this cushion of several teams getting minus 12 points and which allows us to do the development <laughs> stuff. But I obviously yeah. don't wish and, that on anybody. You know, I like Wickham and Rotherham are in there as unknown quantities as well. And it's is it Coventry as well in there? Coventry, yeah. I, I mean, Wickham, I, I think, might struggle. Coventry, I think, will be all right because I think their recruitment has already been really, really good. And they've had such a long break. They are going to be herring out the traps to play. They'll be chewing at the bit. So it's going to be an interesting season. But I, I think I would love nothing more. And I've said this to Steve before then just a nice, drama-free, steady, <laughs> decent football, few good wins, cruising to mid-table, and that's it. You know, <laughs> that would and hopefully be... all of the drama next season will be on the field and there'll be none of it. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. the thing. That's the thing. Yeah, completely agree with all of that. Right, fantastic. I think we've rambled on long enough, so I won't keep anyone else any longer. Matt, thank you very much. I'm sure everyone who listens to this already listens to Andy Takes That Chance, but if you don't, it's a fantastic podcast. And uh, Dave, I'm sure everyone is aware of Opta, and if they're not, it's a fantastic company. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This podcast has been too long. Uh, Ockley Books, uh, of course, have have some fantastic books on sale. I've just picked up uh, the book that you plugged a few weeks ago, Dave, the Fantasy Premier League, Unlocking the Secrets to a Top 1% Finish. Uh, I've already started on it, and I've already got a few ideas in mind for a fantasy football team for next season. So if uh, if you're at all interested in fantasy football, get on that. And there's other great books on Ockley Books as well. Um, Ockleybooks.co.uk, is it, Dave? It is. O-C-K-L-E-Y books.co.uk. Fantastic. Thank you to you both, and thank you to everyone for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>